with our students. Thank you for those of y'all that have done that um, in the past. <clears throat> All right, March, spring break is coming. Uh, warmer weather is, is upon us. Things are looking up. And so um, I wanted to spend a minute as we walk into this text on such happy thoughts. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about a trip I've told you about, but I'm going to tell you something different about it. Um, it was something that our daughter said, uh, this was probably three or four years ago, and it is this text verbatim. I mean, it is the passage. But I got to give you the context to the statement that she said, and I think it'll make sense. We were planning our 25th anniversary trip, um, the one that I, I've, I've told you different illustrations from it because it was awesome. Um, you know how trips go. You do all this planning, um, you know, and, and, and there are categories. Sometimes you get back and, and it's, you think to yourself, that, that wasn't horrible. And some are okay. And then some of them end up in the Hall of Fame of vacations, right? This trip was that one. Um, one of the primary reasons is because it was just me and my wife. That's usually a good indication that it's going to be awesome. And so it, it was one of those trips where I, I remember on the last day we were, we were out sitting by this pool, this infinity pool that's overlooking the ocean. And, and I remember saying, and I was dead serious, do you think there's any way we could bump our flights a couple of days and see if your parents could keep the kids a couple more days. And if there's room in the hotel a couple of more days, if the hotel can accommodate us. Because it's one, it was one of those, those weeks you just don't want to leave, right? The, the setup was amazing. It was that kind of trip. And so it took us weeks to plan this. And um, I've shared with you before, and many of you have asked me, and I've given you advice, and you're welcome. That on those big trips, we, we go to all-inclusive resorts in Mexico. This is a free, it's a game changer. I promise if you book it for your spouse, they're not going to complain. It's awesome. And so we've got everything booked, and my wife had an idea, and it involves saving money, so I'm always in on that. She said, hey, babe. So we don't have to buy swimsuits and all that because we're coming out of the winter and had put on a few pounds. She goes, what if we eat salads all week or like two weeks before we go on the trip for dinner and, and we could lose weight and fit into our old swimsuits? I'm like, I'm in. That's a great idea. And so we were on probably night four or five when my daughter made this statement at dinner. The, the family's seated at the bar and we're eating our salads, and my daughter is very, she's the sweetest thing ever. She looks like her mom, but she has my personality, so she's very blunt, which I love about her. You always know where you stand. We're eating our salads, and she says, in the middle of dinner, if y'all go on an all-inclusive trip to Cabo and eat salads all week, Y'all are stupid. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> I mean, of course we would be, right? You don't pay ahead for an all-inclusive resort to celebrate all week 
that has five-star restaurants and unlimited 24-hour dining experiences and room service to starve yourself and eat a salad. Like, you can just stay home and do that. Y'all, here's the point of her statement, and here's our text. It's the wrong time and the wrong place to eat salads on an all-inclusive couple's trip to Cabo. You don't diet on that trip. You don't count calories and carbs and macros. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Now, you might do that before you go or when you get back, especially when you get back. But you don't do it while you're there. It is the wrong time and the wrong place to live like that. Y'all, that is the text. It is the wrong time and the wrong place to live legalistically like a Pharisee now that Jesus has come. To feast on its graces together, would you please take your copies of God's Word and stand with me out of reverence for both God and His Word as we continue our study of the book of Luke. We are in chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. And they, that's the Pharisees and the scribes, said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you send the Spirit fresh this morning? Uh, and open our eyes and our hearts once again to the beauty of, of this passage. It, it, would, it would affect the way that we live. And, and in doing so, it would bring honor and glory to your son, which is, which is what our hearts desire, that our flesh can't produce. And so would you give us the gracious aid uh, of your spirit to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The first thing I want you to notice with me in the text, that with the coming and the presence of Jesus and the fullness of his grace, this is the wrong time for legalistic living. So what you're saying is that we disregard God's law. That is not what I'm saying. Uh, I am not an advocate for disobedience. You, you will never hear that come from behind this pulpit. If it does, you need to have a congregational vote and fire me immediately. 
Legalistic living is different than obeying God's law. Legalistic living is what the Pharisees are guilty of. It's not the law that's the issue. It's their tradition, right? It's their laws on top of laws and codes on top of law to ensure that the law isn't broken. It's their making of laws and then binding others by tradition where God has set them free. And so it begins in verse 33. Again, if you remember the, the context from last week with the calling of Levi, and there's this great party, this, this banquet, this celebration in Levi's house that doesn't go over well with them. And so they say in verse 33, And they said to him, to Jesus, The disciples of John fast often, that's John the Baptist, and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So you can tell they're agitated that Jesus' disciples are eating and drinking and feasting with sinners, but the fact that they're celebrating it all. Why are your disciples so happy? Have you ever been in a church like that? Why are you joyous? They're experiencing joy and gladness and celebration and feast. Why? John the Baptist's disciples and our disciples of the Pharisees, we fast often. Y'all aren't fasting like us. What's wrong with you? That's another problem with legalism, right? Because something is right or wrong for me now means it's right or wrong for you. And if you don't live by the same code as I do, then you're in sin. It does not work like that. Don't you understand that religion is supposed to be burdensome and joyless and a denial of such things? Now, here's what you have to know. I found this fascinating. I've told you before, I'm a loud simpleton. But I found this, it does not take much to amaze me. You got to know this. In the Old Testament, out of 365 days a year, guess how many the Jews were commanded by God to fast? Out of, out of 365 days, and this is under the law, this is before Christ came, out of 365 days, how many days in the Old Testament were the Jews commanded to fast? Survey says, do you know? Anybody want to take a guess? One. One day. They were commanded to fast on the Day of Atonement. One day. That is 0.27% of the time on one single day. And so 99.73% of the time, they are not required or commanded to fast on the other 364 days. Now it wasn't prohibited. They just weren't required to. And so the Jews voluntarily fasted during periods of mourning or to draw near to God for certain seasons or events. Y'all, that's why John the Baptist's disciples are fasting. 
They are fasting to draw near to God to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. You want to voluntarily fast for that? Do you, are, you in a, are you in a spirit of dryness in your soul and you want to fast in order to draw near to the things of God? Knock yourself out. That's great. You might not want to expect everybody else to do it, but that's a great way to get out of those plateau seasons of dryness. Amen to that, right? You're not prohibited from fasting more often, but you're only commanded to fast once a year. However, the Pharisees have decided that per their tradition, everyone should fast twice a week, every week on Monday and Thursday. Do you know where that's found in the Bible? Nowhere. You see what they've done? The law required once a year, and they have now placed a law on top of that law that requires twice a week. That's what legalism does. It, it places requirements binding individuals and their consciences beyond what Scripture does, and it's why we hate it. So the Pharisees, every week, fast twice a week, per their tradition, on Monday and Thursday. And so someone could have said, why? And the response would have been, because. Because we said so. Because that's what we do. That's our law. And that's what you have to do to earn God's favor. You, you present your merit and your sacrifice. And you're denying yourself of the pleasures of food. To show your seriousness about godliness on Monday and Thursday. Not just one day a year, but two days a week. That's what we require. That's 104 days out of the year. That's 28% of the year where the law only requires 0.27%. And y'all, when they did so, it was with disfigured appearances and, and gloomy countenances so everyone would know. Everyone would look at them and, oh, they're suffering for God today. Because for them, spirituality meant unhappy and uncomfortable. Now, Jesus responds with this analogy of a wedding feast. Can you make a wedding guest or wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Y'all, here's why it's, it's the wrong time. <laughs> this is what you got to know here culturally. In this culture, um, you didn't go on a honeymoon like we do. The newly married couple remained at home and had a week-long feast or party with all their family and friends and usually the whole village. It lasted seven days. Now, this is big. The rabbis even commanded that everyone who attended those, the Pharisees included, were not to fast 
on these feast days or do anything else that would lessen their joy? Now, this is what you pay me to find out and tell you. This is big. And when the Pharisees went to these week-long wedding parties, they didn't fast on the Mondays or the Thursdays because the rabbis had commanded that they not. Now, does it make sense? Nobody, not even the Pharisees, were required to fast in the presence of the bride and groom at their wedding festivities. You know why? Because it's the wrong time. It's the wrong time for fasting because the bridegroom is amongst them. And what Jesus is saying is the reason why my disciples don't fast is because it would be equally inappropriate. Jesus is declaring that he is the bridegroom and in his presence is a time of feasting and not fasting. It's a time of joy and celebration because he is here. And as the bridegroom, he is the bridegroom and we as the church, this is what it means for us. One commentator said this. I don't remember who it was at me. That's all that's important. Like a good husband has a deep and abiding love and intimacy for his wife. Christ is the same for us. Our union with him is closer than that of a husband and a wife. When he is here, it is, it is time to feast. However, in verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. That's, that's, that language is hinting at violence. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. All right? So what are we referring to there? The crucifixion. There is going to come a time when it is appropriate for my disciples to fast as they mourn when I'm taken away. But it's not going to last long. It's only going to last for three days. And then the grave is going to burst forth in glorious array at his resurrection. And the time of fasting will then give way to time of feasting once again. And so Madison Heights, what, what time is it? It's the age-old question that Francis Schaeffer used to ask all the time. In light of these things, how then shall we live, right? If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Verses 6 to 9. You know, this time of year, it, it'll start in about three weeks. You'll start getting wedding invitations in the mailbox. It is, wedding season is right around the corner, right? Y'all, you're missing it if you don't attend a wedding and have one eye cut to this. Verse 6. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. There you are in the Bible. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and purple, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Y'all, what what time is it? What, What time is it for us Those who have Christ's presence with us spiritually as a foretaste of a glimpse of of where we're headed? Yo, it's a time for celebration. If you want to fast over something, fast. And I would say there are appropriate times to fast. If I were you, another freebie, there are large life decisions that I would not make without fasting. Easy. Um, might want to fast before you pick a mate. You might want to fast before the job change or before you buy the house. I mean, the list goes on and on. Big decisions, we fast. Those are appropriate times to fast. But y'all, it's not required that on this day and this day every week we fast. Because the gospel of grace has set us free from such living. By his grace, we live celebratory lives, joy-filled lives, hope-filled lives and existences, even in the hard times, right? Even in the difficult seasons, even in the painful seasons, because we are betrothed to the bridegroom, and we know that this life isn't all that there is. It is. It's one of the greatest blessings of the redeemed when you live the hardest seasons of life, right? To know in your heart, to to know in your spirit, thank God this isn't it. There's more to come than this. This is just the cover page. Those seasons of the gospel will never be as sweet when you can cling to those and your pain and trust and know. We are headed towards a day, a grand eternal day that will last forever where none of that will ever happen again. In his presence is where the fullness of joy resides. And I would ask you, where in your life this morning do you need to remember that? Here's where it hits me. Where in my life am I trying to go find it somewhere else? Because that's really why we sin, right? I, mean, I don't think anybody wakes up and thinks, you know, I want to disobey God today and see what happens. It's normally, this is the way I work, it's normally I don't believe that his ways are going to give me the pleasure and the joy that I'm seeking, so I'm going to go outside of bounds to find it. 
Where do you need to remember that in his presence is the fullness of joy? And when we go outside of that, when we go outside of his ways, we forfeit that and we become satisfied with counterfeits. Y'all, we are headed to an eternal feast, an eternal party, an eternal celebration, which means that this life for us is simply the pregame, right? Second thing I want you to see in the text. The disciples don't fast because it's not time for them to fast. The disciples don't fast also because of the coming and the fullness of Jesus and his grace. It's the wrong place. For legalistic living. It's the wrong time and it's the wrong place. Jesus continues by telling them two parables. I learned something that's not new. Uh, this always perplexed me until now because Jesus gives them this, this statement about you don't feast in the presence of the bridegroom and then all of a sudden we're talking about sewing up garments and wine. It, it, it always struck me contextually like, what is he? It's kind of like he changes the channel, right? How does that go with this? How do those things relate to the marriage? And obviously the answer is everything. <laughs> it, it couldn't be more clearer. Identifying himself as the bridegroom, using the illustration of a wedding feast or celebration, those included two other primary things in this culture. It meant the presence of fine clothing and it meant the presence of good wine. That's why he tells these two parables with these two subjects. It still falls under the, 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 the theme that he is in of the wedding. You did not wear your everyday clothes to a wedding. That, that was an enormous social no-no. Everybody wore their absolute best. And for seven days, as with Jesus' first miracle in John 2, you drank really, really, really good wine, the finest that the couple and the family could afford. First parable in verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. All right, so it's the first day of the wedding feast and you go to the closet and you get out your dress that you're going to wear or your suit that you're going to wear that you wear to every wedding and you notice that a moth has eaten a hole since the last wedding you went to. But, but the dress barn had a dress on clearance a couple of months ago and you couldn't help but buy it because you knew another wedding was going to come and you might need it and it looked like your old one. And so you thought to yourself, no problem, I'll just cut a patch off the old one and patch the new dress and I'm good to go. Here's why you wouldn't do that. A, you put a hole in your brand new dress. And B, when you sew it on the old one, it's not going to match because the old one is faded and worn. And so, in essence, what you've done is ruined them both. Same thought in verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. So in this culture, to transport wine, you, you tanned goat skins and you used their skins as containers. That's what you carried wine in. And so the older they got, they, the skins would harden and become brittle, which is fine if you're keeping aged wine in there. The, the problem with new wine is it expands when it ferments. So you got to put it in the new wine skin so the, the skin will expand as it ferments and expands. If you put new wine that's going to expand in the old brittle wine skin, they're going to burst and you've now lost all your wine and your wine skin. But new wine in verse 38 must be put into fresh wineskins. That's the right place for them, right? Here's what he's saying in these two parables. We would say it like this. It's out with the old and in with the new, right? Out with the old and in with the new. You cannot mix the old with the new or both will be destroyed. Now, do you understand what he's talking about? Now that the bridegroom is here, now that Jesus is here, he brings with his presence the fullness of his grace and it's a time for rejoicing and celebrating and feasting. What he brings with himself is the person and the work and the inauguration of the new covenant. That's what the text is about. He is the new covenant. He cannot be mixed or added with the old or both will be destroyed. You can't mix the covenant of grace with the covenant of works when it comes to you and I. They're incompatible. They're not a match. The covenant of works was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. You don't want this. Here it was. Obey perfectly and live. Disobey one time and you die. What do you think? I'm out on that. Yo, that is what pharisaical modern day legalism still is though, right? Hey God, let's go back to the covenant of works and I'll obey and then you bless and you save. But the problem is the inconsistency. If you just fail one time, it's over. Yo, we aren't bound by the covenant of works anymore because... Jesus came and fulfilled the covenant of works on our behalf, right? We're not saying the covenant of works isn't important. Oh, it's important. We're just not bound by it because Jesus fulfilled it on our behalf. And therefore has given us the covenant of grace. It is the wrong place for legalistic living now that the covenant of grace has come. Uh, I've told you this story. I'm going to start repeating stories, A, because I forget, and B, because a lot of you are new, so you get to hear them again. I don't know. I tried to think of a better way to illustrate this, and I, I, I don't have one in my life. Um, when I was a senior in college my last semester, we were getting married in May. Sherry had a year and a half of school left to go. 
Um, and so we, we pulled our money together to buy a starter home. And I mean, we thought we were high class. Um, if you're familiar with Memphis, we were in the Dirty Dova, as it's called, in a starter home neighborhood. And uh, I mean, we get to, you know, we go to the office and we pick out the lot and we pick out the linoleum for the floor and, you know, the Formica for every, the whole nine yards. And um, so we, we pulled together our down payment was $5,000, all the money that she and I had combined. And she's, you know, saved all her money lifeguarding. She's like, are you sure? But yes. And so we, we buy the starter home. And brick color, we picked out everything. And so as we got closer to May, when I would graduate and get married on the exact same day, didn't go to my graduation. <clears throat> my parents were thrilled because um, they didn't have to go either. So let's say if we're in like April of that semester, here's what would happen. We would spend the weekend getting the house. I lived in the house. I moved in the house in like February or March. So on the weekends, we would hang pictures and we would buy furniture. And then there are several weekends that we went outside and we planted flowers in the flower bed. I mean, all that stuff. And this is what was so weird. We'd order a pizza and around 11 o'clock at night, I would say, I guess I got to take you back home. She lived like 12 miles away. We're three or four weeks from being married. Now, let me go back and tell you another reason why I'm not saying the law doesn't matter. The reason why we didn't live together was a matter of obedience. Let me tell you the way it starts in Genesis and it never changes. Leave, and I, I'm not touting our own be like I'm just this is just a matter of obedience right leave cleave become one flesh get them out of that order and you're in sin it's pretty clear you want to have guilt-free intimacy and you're just you just do it in order you leave you cleave you become one flesh we haven't left and cleft in a marriage ceremony yet so she's not we're not cohabiting so we work all day we got the house done. We're going to be living here together in a couple of weeks. We get to 1130. Let's get in the car and I'll take you back home. Of which I did. Now, what if tonight, around 1130, I say to her, I guess you better get back in the car and I'll take you to your parents' house. We're at that point in our lives where she has lived longer with me than she has with her parents. That would be insanely crazy, right? <laughs> Do you know why? Because it's the wrong place now that we're married. She doesn't belong at our parents' house at night. She belongs at our house. The old order of engagement has given way to the new era of marriage and you don't go back and mix them or both would be destroyed. Yo, that is the point of the parables. But instead of engagements, it's old covenant and Judaism that has been replaced by the new covenant and the kingdom with the coming of Jesus, who's the king. It's not the place for living in old covenant ceremonial things because the new covenant of grace has come. It would be insanity to return to that or to try to mix them together. You would destroy both. Now, once again, because we said last week, and I'll say it over the course of the next couple of weeks, 
We are all recovering Pharisees to varying extents, right? We are. It is in your flesh. Where practically is your flesh prone to do that, though? To mix the old and the new. Where do you have to remind yourself, I can't go back to that sort of living after the saving grace of Christ has entered my life? Let me tell you, the the hardest place to do it is after you've blown it in your son. That's the hardest place. Got to do some penance. Got to atone for that one. That was a really bad one. I got to do this. I got to do that. Nope. You got to believe to tell us dive more is what you got to do. You have to fall all the more and rest all the more in the finished and accomplished work of Jesus and believe all the more that the Father loves you no less during your obedience than he does during your obedience, disobedience. Y'all, that's why it's harder to do because it's everything our flesh is opposed to. Now let's close with a word about wine. I know a little bit about wine enough to be dangerous. I know this. If someone offered you a bottle of really good 2024 or 2010, you would take the 2010, right? Everybody knows that. The older, the better. That's true, and that logic will make us miss verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. And we're like, yeah. He's speaking to the Pharisees who view Judaism as the old. It's the best. We don't need to try the new. We aren't even willing to taste the new because the old is good. The old works. Now here's where we would miss it if we take our contemporary minds and apply it to that. When you go to the Old Testament and you study the phrase new wine as in like Deuteronomy 7 and other places, new wine in scripture is indicative of God's blessing and prosperity and exuberant joy. Like you can go look at John chapter 2, Jesus' first miracle this afternoon if you want to see it. It's a great picture of it. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is the new wine. And the Pharisees aren't even willing to try it because they're so convinced that the old way is better and nothing could outdo it. They don't even view themselves as sinners, so they don't sense a need to try the gospel. Y'all, the, the question for us this morning is this. Do we know a lot about, or have we by faith tasted the joy and the celebration and being awestruck of grace found within our souls because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners like us. If not, maybe it's because you're still wearing the old clothes and drinking the old wine that are both devoid of his grace Y'all, now that he has come, it is the wrong time and the wrong place. 
I'll leave you with a statement by Philip Ryken. For he gives us new clothing of his righteousness and new wineskins of grace filled with the new wine of his spirit. Amen. And having this, you would dare dream or imagine to going back to that? No way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and your grace and your patience. And um, we pray this morning that that the newness of the new covenant of grace would, would you would give us hearts that would be so satisfied by it. Give us a fresh taste of it this morning. A fresh satisfaction in it so that a fresh fellowship with you so that when, we, when we're tempted um, to pursue sin this week, that the Holy Spirit might rouse up within us and, and make us think in the moment, no, 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 we, we don't want to sacrifice this for the counterfeit fleeting pleasures of some sin. We want that, but can't produce it on our own. So would you produce it within us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please stand with us and sing our closing hymn of response.